Please stand for the reading of the scriptures. Acts 2, verses 38 through 47. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will... And the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked, crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking breads in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may now be seated. Good morning, Orlando Grace Church. Come on, y'all can say it better than that. Good morning. All right. (laughs) It's good to be home. It's good to be home and uh, great to be with you. It's truly an honor uh, to be sharing with you on this Sunday and... uh, Glad to be among our family here in Orlando. See so many faces that we miss you guys, uh, but we're glad to be in, in South Florida and be about the mission that God has called us to there. And we want to really, uh, on behalf of my wife and my sons, my daughter, we want to thank you all so much for your prayer, uh, for the relationships that uh, we've had with you, and for your support. Thank you so much. And um, as you've heard today already, my family and I, we recently moved back to South Florida with the intention of of planting a church in the city of Lauderdale, just west of Fort Lauderdale, the city of Fort Lauderdale. And as I prepared to to speak to you all this morning, I had to pause to consider what we're going to be doing. That phrase, planting a church, right? What we feel called and led to do is not merely start an organization, um, or a nonprofit business, or even a movement. What we've been called to do is to settle in the city, to be salt and light, and gather those whom God will bring to repentance and faith through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, as we are working for the good of the city. And so, because a church is not merely an organization, though it is organized, it is the united body of believers in Jesus Christ, and it extends far beyond who we can see right now. The Apostles' Creed is uh, one of the historic summary statements of what the church believes about God and the church, and in it, the church confesses as one body, we believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, where Catholic means uh, comprehensive, And this particular line in this confession is, it's not just referring to Orlando Grace Church or University Presbyterian Church or Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church um, or St. Luke Episcopal Church or First Baptist. When we talk about the communion of saints, we're referring to the fellowship 
and the relationship that we share with the believers that we'll learn about in our text today, as well as all believers in Jesus that have lived and passed into, from this world into the eternal presence of God. We have a fellowship with them because God has also convicted our hearts by his love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now we believe in him. Therefore, we've been adopted by God into his family. And that's really an amazing thought, isn't it? We're now brothers and sisters for eternity, whether you like it or not. Because of Jesus Christ. And so we share this fellowship with believers uh, who are living all over the world today in every country, every nationality, thousands of colors, cultures, a spectrum of, of skin shades, speaking different languages. We even share this fellowship with those who haven't even been born yet. In the eyes of our Savior who died for his church, we're one church, we're one body with one head, Jesus Christ, who declared in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's upon that authority that, that we're commissioned to go and make more disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as wonderful as it is that we have that communion with past and future saints, there's something special about the communion or the community we have with the saints in the present, particularly with the community of believers in Christ who are physically close to you. Those of this particular household of faith, Orlando Grace Church. And it may not, um, or it may feel like it to you right now, but the community that this church has is special. It's most special because you guys are brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you believe that? All right. Would you turn to somebody and say, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ? All right. All right. All right. We don't normally do that, right? All right. Everybody okay? All right. Good, good. There might be a couple of reasons why you might not feel this all the time. Number one, community doesn't happen automatically. So even for a church that is made up of believers in Jesus who've been filled with the Holy Spirit and, and we've been mystically brought into union with Jesus Christ and with each other, but it doesn't happen automatically even in our own families, right? Those folks we see every day, we eat with, sleep with, live with, community has to be fostered. It has to be developed. As a boy, when I, when I would get into the inevitable arguments with my sister that would just turn into a fight, you know, my parents would, would stop us and say, no, 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 your blood, you've got to work it out, your family. And, and I have the privilege of being married to, to Brenda over there for 23 years now. And that privilege, though, obligates me to work hard to resolve our differences, to work to become one flesh as God has declared us to be. Having close community doesn't happen automatically. But number two, beyond community not happening automatically, community is hard. Not everyone here has great memories or experiences when it comes to the idea of community. You may have exhausted all the peacemaking principles you know in your family, and you've still ended up with unresolved conflict being distant from one another. You may have experienced people that you care deeply about and that you've poured a lot into and they've moved away from you and it's painful. You may have even been part of a church community where you never really fit in or you were hurt 
and it left you jaded about the concept of community, even jaded about the church and maybe even about God himself. However, it is with the church that God gives us an opportunity to make him known as the church works together to proclaim the gospel and to be salt and light in the world as we love one another as he loves us. And for that kind of community to happen in this household, we've got to be intentional about remembering what Jesus has done for us and by being obedient to Jesus. And so for those of us who are believers in Jesus, for the church, our world needs to see this right now really needs this right now. An isolated and lonely world needs to feel and know and understand what we have. Late last year, the uh, BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, sponsored a nationwide survey called the Loneliness Experiment. And this is the largest survey into the issue of loneliness that exists to date. Of 55,000 people surveyed, over 40% of 16 to 24-year-olds indicated that they experienced loneliness more often and more intensely, greater than any other age group. Now this is, uh, well, let me say this. One of the presenters of the findings said this. We were staggered by the huge numbers of people taking part in our survey. This research shows we need to take loneliness seriously in all age groups. We know that most loneliness is temporary, but we need to find ways to prevent it from becoming chronic. Now this group, this 16 to 24-year-olds. This is the, the largest percentage of, percentage of users of social media, right? And, and the belief was that technology would connect us like never before, but really social media has exposed the fact that what we need are real relationships, real life-on-life community. And in 2007, a commission on loneliness was released in the UK calling for governmental action and suggesting strategies for combating loneliness including taking personal responsibility for maintaining relationships, intentionally engaging with family, neighbors, and one's wider social network, working to make communities as welcoming as possible. So however possible, our world is looking for solutions to combat isolation and move toward loving and caring relationships that work to combat depression, anxieties, and loneliness. So saying all this, I want you to understand the church does not exist merely as a cure for loneliness. And a relationship with Christ in the church may not eliminate all feelings of loneliness, especially as we come to understand that there's a longing in our hearts that must continually be filled through our relationship with our God until he returns. But in our text today, we see a portrait of God's grace being shown in the community of the earlier church that we can experience today because we're the same body of Christ. And as we reflect on what we see in this text, may our intentions toward each other and toward those who are not believers in Christ be shaped in order to reflect that same grace. We may lack the power on our own to be the community that God has called us to be, but because of God's grace, there's going to be four observations that we can make in the text that are characteristic of the church from the outset. The salvation experienced by the church, its resulting devotion to Jesus and to each other, the compassion it showed to the body of Christ and to the world, and the impression it made on the world. Four things, salvation, devotion, compassion, impression. 
In our chapter, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus' followers had gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem after he ascended to heaven following his resurrection. And some strange events had just taken place, if you're familiar with the text. Um, The apostle Peter is speaking to a large crowd, and he's explaining to them what has happened. Many of them had witnessed Jesus being crucified, and now they've just witnessed flames appearing over the disciples who were in the upper room. And the disciples suddenly being able to to speak in a a number of languages and praising God in different languages that weren't native to them, but that the people in the crowd understood clearly. And Peter explained it this way, quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, Joel. In verse 17 of our text, it says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And then in verse 21 of chapter 2, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is saying this, the last days are here, and God is not holding, holding you back from being included in his family now. Just believe on him. Call on the name of the Lord. And listen to the summary of his message in verse 40. He says, and with, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. By crooked generation, or or some versions say corrupt generation, he means a world outside of Christ that's hopelessly corrupt and decaying. Pastor Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, there's a force in the world that makes everything disintegrate. You can just tell. Look at your relationships. Look at your friendships. Unless you are working incredibly hard to maintain them, they fall apart. Little misunderstandings come in. Relationships fall apart. Families fall apart. So in this sermon in in Acts 2, Peter admonishes the world to turn from this force, from sin, through repentance, and to turn to Christ in faith as their, in faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. To believe in the work that Jesus has done on their behalf. And here's what we receive when we do, when they did and when we do. Keller paraphrases it this way, a salvation that is absolutely comprehensive. A salvation that will reverse the corrupting power of human existence, a force that's greater than that force that automatically makes relationships and our physical bodies fall apart, automatically makes families, civilizations, and cultures fall apart. I have something that will heal the results of all sin. I have something that will heal physically and spiritually and emotionally and socially in every way. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus is not just offering assistance. He's he's offering to change the framework of our existence from being part of a corrupt, decaying generation to being a part of the body of Christ, the one who defeated death, who defeated hell, who defeated the grave, who never decayed who lives forever, and because he lives forever, so will you and I as members of the household of Christ, the church. That's salvation. And so in verse 31, those who received his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So God was convicting their hearts, and there was genuine repentance, and 
they willingly and publicly affirm their status as members of the household of faith, of the community of believers. And think about this. I'm sure everybody didn't know everybody. Remember, there were folks there from all over the world, different cultures, different languages, different likes and dislikes. Now they're all a part of the same community group. Now they're going to the temple together. Now they have all things in common. And you see what salvation does? It joins you to a family that you now have to get to know. It's like, you know, when we bring our children here to be blessed, uh, they have the awesome opportunity to hear the gospel, to see it worked out, not just in their immediate families, but also in the community, in this household of faith. And the same for when we baptize new believers. The entire household has a privilege of welcoming these new members into the family, teaching them what the apostles taught, breaking bread with them, beating back the darkness and decay of this world by praying with them, loving them, caring for them like family because of God's salvation. And that brings us to the second characteristic of this New Testament church, devotion. So in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These new Christians, whose lives had been forever changed when they heard the message of the gospel and and believed, and who were baptized, now had new hearts that longed to know more about Jesus. They were basking in their new identity as children of God, and, and this is a God they knew previously as, as a lawgiver and as a judge, and now they know him as their father. They're now children of God, enjoying all the rights and privileges of being in the family. But they weren't satisfied with just being part of the family in name only. They were all in. They were devoting themselves to four things, to teaching, to fellowship, to celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and to prayer. And the word uh, devoted is significant, as you might have guessed. It's translated here from the Greek word proskartereo, which can have the meaning of, of faithfully attaching oneself to a person or applying oneself exclusively to a certain thing, devoting oneself to it tire, tirelessly. So, so this is not just mere observance of these things. This is not just consistent attendance. This is not just, you know, the, the primary enthusiasm that eventually wanes. This is devotion, devotion. Um, for her role in the movie Black Swan, Natalie Portman trained with the New York City ballet dancer Mary Helen Bowers for eight hours a day, six days a week, for 12 months before the film started. That's a picture of devotion. And for his role in the film Fury, Shayu Shea Labouf, I can't say his name right, Shea Shayi Labouf. Well, what, he trained with the U.S. National Guard. He was a chaplain's assistant in the 41st Infantry. And during the filming, he didn't bathe for four months. Can you say devotion? <laughs> Jamie Foxx, he wanted to give the best imitation of of Ray Charles in that movie Ray and on the movie said he wore prosthetic eyelids and uh, left him blind for most of the day and on on many days the crew would 
inadvertently leave him alone on the set because they forgot that he was blind. He learned all of the piano parts for the movie. He lost 30 pounds in one week for the role. Devotion. Now, these are, these are just actions, but what we see in this new, this new community, when the apostle Peter, when, when he came and said, hey, let's talk about what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament scriptures and how all of the scriptures were fulfilled in him, I can imagine that this community was right there, intently listening. And if, if the apostle John came and said, let me tell you how Jesus prayed to his father that we all may be one as he and the Father are one so that the world may believe that Jesus sent him and that the world believed that he sent him to save us. They were right there to listen, to imitate John. They needed to know. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And the apostle James said, let me tell you about the resurrection and teach you about what that means for us, how we've passed from death to light, that the entire world will be restored and renewed, including our lives when he returns. They were intentional and devoted to listening, to learning, to obeying. And what gave them the power to do this? Certainly having hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit does this, but one of the means that God uses is this community and the encouragement that they give to one another in fellowship. So they devoted themselves to fellowship, and that's remarkable. It's noteworthy because you can, you can devote yourself, right, individually to teaching. You can even devote yourself to prayer as an individual. You can even try to attempt to devote yourself to participating in the Lord's Supper without too much intentional interaction with, with others. But it's impossible to devote yourselves to fellowship by yourself. Fellowship requires interaction with others and with our community. As a believer, a Christian, a member of the body of Christ, I want you to know that the Spirit of Christ makes it possible for us to devote ourselves to one another. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. Years later, the Apostle Paul would encourage the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And he said this, let each one of you look out Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." The disciples of Jesus, now the apostles, were first-hand witnesses of this. And with his status as king of the universe, if anyone had the right to demand devotion, it would be Jesus. But for our sakes, Christ became completely and utterly vulnerable. He became a human being. And Jesus devoted himself to every one of his disciples. And they were never the same. He instructed them to love one another as he had loved them. And now after the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 more were added to their ranks, they are devoting themselves, giving themselves away to each other. Giving themselves in ways that had not, done, that had not 
been done before in society, not in Jewish society, not in Roman society. The rich were there as well as the poor. The African was there, the Asian, the European was there. Different personalities, different abilities and disabilities. All devoting themselves to one another in fellowship, learning about one another, eating together, praying together, giving to, one, to each other, giving up whatever rights they thought they had, appreciating and adapting to their differences. They were all attempting to ensure that the other had what they needed to survive and thrive. Now, Jesus was the one who brought this community together. And if we don't seek Jesus as the cornerstone of our community, we don't have real community. But because of Jesus, we can look at our calendars and prioritize our community group meetings above just going to a movie by ourselves. Because of Jesus, we can attempt to learn the name and story of one more person that we may not know in this household of faith so we can commit to praying for them. Jesus helps us to devote ourselves to this. And this community's devotion to fellowship included their devotion to the Lord's Supper and to prayer because these were done together in this household of faith. They, They prayed together, and as one commentator notes, the idea of devotion when it comes to prayer is that of constant diligence, effort that never lets up, and a confident waiting for results. What an exciting time this must have been. No wonder there was awe, it says, among everyone. Because in devoting themselves to prayer, they prayed expecting to hear from God and expecting to be changed by God. And what scripture records is that there were wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. So there's a common salvation that brings this community together. And there's devotion to God and to each other. And the third characteristic that marked this early New Testament church is that of compassion. But briefly before we talk about uh, compassion, how many of you all have ever heard of Marie Kondo? Anybody? All right, I see what your viewing is like. Marie Kondo is now famous in America as well as in Australia and her native Japan because we have too much stuff. That's why she's famous. She's given people a reason to get rid of things that they don't want, things that they don't even like. She's just given us a reason to get rid of it. Statistics show that there are 300,000 items in the average American home. 25% of people with two-car garages don't have room to park their cars inside their garages. Any, anybody? All right. One in ten Americans rent offside storage for their stuff. We have enough storage facilities in the United States for every man, woman, and child to actually stand in storage space at the same time in America. We do. We've got stuff. And Marie Kondo helps us get rid of it. So in her Netflix show, Tidying Up, she encourages us to put all of our stuff in the middle of the room and to just stare at it, feeling deep in our soul how much stuff it is and how unnecessary it is. And then, then you'll take up like one piece of clothing and, 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 and you ask yourself, does this spark 
Joy. All right. Y'all are with me. Does this spark joy? Because if it does, if you feel the joy, then you keep it. If you don't, then you discard it. Well, before you discard it, you thank the clothing for everything that it has meant to your life. And then you discard it. And so thrift stores, they've seen a marked increase in the number of items that are being donated since the show started airing. And I've got to admit that this show really helped me think about how much stuff I've accumulated and how much I could get rid of. And in our text, the church was also giving their stuff away. But their motivation was much, much different than those inspired by Marie Kondo. In the Old Testament, God had instructed the Israelites that there will be no poor among you. God would bless them in a way that they had enough and enough to give to those among them who did not have the ability to acquire what some others had. God would provide for everyone through everyone. But the Israelites, they were really disobedient to this and they didn't apply this consistently. But in the New Testament church, there are changed hearts and transformed lives because of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. And in this community, the scriptures come alive. They come alive in a new way in these people who are literally new creations. And the the remembrance of the example of Jesus and his love for them, with that remembrance, their possessions no longer possess them. They realize that it was not because of their ingenuity, it wasn't because of their hard work that caused them to acquire these possessions, but Ultimately, it was because God had allowed them to have it. And so the time had come to steward what God had given them to help others. So they were giving out of compassion, not out of compulsion. They were giving out of compassion, not selfishly. And they were glad about it. God increased the generosity of their hearts. And this this compassion thing, it was really characteristic of this community and Again, frankly, it was strange because this was not the way that the rest of the world acted. It was not the way the Jews acted, not the way the Romans acted. There was really no community like it. In fact, for example, it was common in Roman culture for parents to discard unwanted children, leaving them exposed to the elements, especially baby girls. But in their compassion, the Christian community would have none of it. They would go and rescue these children, these unwanted children. Christians became known for their service to the poor. Christians became known for their service to the widow, to the orphan, to the stranger, the foreigner, the immigrant. And the message of salvation and the devotion and compassion of this community made a significant impression on the world. In his book, Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World, historian Larry Hurtado writes something very interesting. He says, the very features of early Christianity that made it odd and objectionable in the ancient Roman setting have become now unquestioned assumptions about religion in much of the modern world. So he writes this, if you were to go out into the street of almost any city today, at least in most Western nations, and ask people, do you believe in God? 
you'd probably get one of three replies. Yes, no, or I'm not sure. Likely no one would ask what you mean by God or what deity you have in mind. Even modern atheists presume that there is only one God to doubt. But in the longer and wider context of human history, this is a curious assumption. It's Its prevalence in large parts of the world today is largely due to the cultural impact of Christianity. And what we see in verse 47 of our text is it's recorded that this Christian community was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. How were they having favor? They would have refused to worship the multitude of the Roman gods. They would have refused to give the proper platitudes to, uh, to, the, to, the, Jewish, uh, to the Jewish officials. They wouldn't eat meals that had been dedicated to Roman deities. How would they have favor with all of the, these realities? Before Jesus ascended, he told them in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. So it's the love that they were showing for one another through devotion and compassion because of their common salvation that then made an impression on the surrounding community. What's recorded later in the book of Acts, though, is that in God's providence, that overwhelming favor that they had in Jerusalem didn't last. Soon after, persecution became so bad that they had to leave. They had to flee Jerusalem. But through the love that's being shown to each other in this community, the testimony of Jesus went forth. The gospel was spread around the world, and the Holy Spirit convicted the hearts of many, and they were added to to, to the church. So the church was and is the means by which the Holy Spirit is adding new believers to the household of Christ. And I'm, I'm just glad that even though I was far from Christ and his family, he brought me into his presence, and gave me a community, all because of the blood of Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was you and I. But for those of us who are believers in Christ, goes on to say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Everything we have, Everything that we are is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to God, and we've been adopted into the family of Jesus. So that it says in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, we're no longer strangers or aliens or foreigners, but we're fellow citizens of heaven with all of the believers in Jesus, past present, and future. We are the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. My parents used to sing an old song. I don't know 
if many of you might would know this song. It says, we're part of the family, the family of God. We've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel. Some of you all know it, right? As we travel this sod, we're part of the family, the family of God. And verse 2 is significant. So sometimes we laugh together. Sometimes we cry. Sometimes we share together heartaches and sighs. Sometimes we dream together of how it will be when we all get together, God's family. So by God's grace, may we find joy in our common salvation that brings this community together. May we be devoted to God and to each other. May we be compassionate toward one another and to the world so that our unbelieving neighbors will see how God has loved us and saved us and that he'll do the same for them. I'm just really glad that the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts and brought us near so that I might be your brother in Christ. And I pray that the Lord has done the same for you. If not, let's talk about it. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing us together as your children, adopting us into your family because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we would not die. His death atoned for our sins. So when we believe in him, we are now adopted into your family. And as this family is together, would you help us, Lord, to honor you with our lives, to glorify you, to give you praise, and to feel the communion that we have, to experience it, and to demonstrate it to the world so that you would be glorified and honored among us. In Christ's name, amen.